Oh, welcome back to Love Bath Love Talks. This is uh, the second hour, and I get to talk to Clifton Graves, who is, uh, you know, I'm making him do all kinds of stuff with his with his phone because <laughs> he looks he looks blurry, and I'm trying to. I want him to be sharp and in focus. All right, here I am. That's all right. Okay. I see you. All right, you can see me. I'm blurry, but the people need to see me. That's yeah, is. people need to. He <laughs> said people don't need to see you. <laughs> <laughs> that's right and it's you know it's radio too yeah so, okay. so people who listen on the radio can't see you know how <laughs> that's it's all good they, they know my how are you voice. doing how are you, you? Doing a, I, I finally get to your show I, you know what? <laughs> it, it, you. it took a solemn occasion to get you to my show <laughs> i apologize for that should have been on here a long time ago and and you will be back because you owe me like eight thousand eight thousand appearances <laughs> How are you, at least? But anyway, how are you? Everything's good with you? You know, I love summer. Summer, it's good. It's yeah. It's been a, you know, it's been a summer. So, you know. Yeah, so. for sure. So, so tell me, how do you know Charles Ogletree? I mean, I know all you Laurelly types know each other, but. Well, actually, it was interesting. I met Charles, uh, who actually, he, if you met him, if you walk, God bless his soul. If if you met him, perhaps the first thing he would say to you would be, "Just call me Tree." Um, <laughs> he, he was he was a he was a, he was a humble brother. I met him uh, when I was in law school. We were in law school at the same time. He was at Harvard, and I was at Georgetown. But his best friend, uh, Reginald Turner, was a classmate of mine at Georgetown. So this is in the mid mid seventies, and like, oh gosh, I'm dating myself. Um, and so <laughs> Charles. It was at Harvard, and it, it was campaigning to run for national president at the Black Law Students Association. And so Reggie was his campaign manager. So Reggie brought Charles down to Georgetown because we had a large contingent of inactive Black students in my school. And I was active in the Black Student Union, so he wanted to make sure I introduced Charles. And I'm sorry, got introduced to Charles and, um, and helped him with his campaign. So that's how we met, and and I and I we hit it off right away because we had some similar interests, and I was impressed with his 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 brilliance, his intelligence, his commitment, and so uh, we 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 struggled with friendship then, but it was navigated primarily by by Reggie Turner, uh, my 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 classmate, and um, and and that's that's how it started. So so one one key thing was about our relationship. So Charles, during this time, it's interesting how life. Uh, Life comes full circle, Babs. At the time, the ba the Baki case was being heard by the Supreme Court. That was the case, of course, that dealt with admissions uh, in, in, in undergraduate and, and graduate schools. Uh, and the race, race could be an issue was then Alan Baki, a white student in California, had challenged the University of California's practices of setting aside a certain number of slots in their uh, medical school for black students and Latinos. And so that case was coming up and we thought it would be, we thought then that'd be a threat to the existence of folks like us in law school and those coming behind us. So we rallied and Charles was in the leadership of that and, he had, and I was on his leadership team. So we had a big rally. We rallied college students and law students from around the country to come to march on the Capitol, not like the folk on January 6th. We marched peaceably to, to the Capitol <laughs> and we had a nice peaceful march. Tw Listen, 25,000, Babs, 25,000 students, mostly African-American and Latino, uh, and their whites as well, joined us to protest and advocate for, for racial uh, parity and justice in, in the admissions process. 
And we and so Charles uh, and I we we were part of that. So the reason I mentioned it is because later, twenty years later, when Charles when Tree wrote his book called All Deliberate Speed, his autobiography and his analysis and critique of fifty years after the Brown versus Board of Education decision, I pick up the book and I'm thumbing through the book, and halfway through the book I see this picture of Charles Overtree and me in the book at at the rally in Washington. At 19, I guess it was 70, 78. And so I didn't know, I, Charles didn't call me, let me know he was going to put my picture in the book. So I had to call him. I called him up and I said, Trey, you put me in the book. And so I was honored and humbled he put me in the book. Then I said, of course, do I get any royalties from this? Do I get like something from this, from you putting my picture in this book? And so we laughed about that. We joked about that uh, every time we saw each other. But I was humbled and honored to be a part of that. And we kept that relationship and nurtured it. But during his career, uh, I followed his career when he when he graduated from uh, Harvard Law School. He came back to Washington, and I was still in law school. And he was he became a, a lawyer with the D.C. Public Defender's Office. And I was in a criminal justice seminar at Georgetown. And I went out, reached out to Tree, and he let me sit in on some of his cases that he was handling. Uh, and of course, as you know, D.C. D.C. Public Defender Office is one of the best in the country. In fact, mm -hmm. as the sister who's the judge in this Trump case now. She came out of the D.C. Public Defender Office and was known as a tough lawyer and, and a tough advocate, similar to the Tree. So Tree does that, and he goes on, and, and he just has just a stellar career uh, going on. He, he, gets, he goes in, he, he gets hired at Harvard uh, to, to teach uh, law there, where he, where he was a mainstay for for, for a couple of decades. Quite frankly, he, he had public television shows. He was a, he had a, an advocacy show. Similar to like it was like a combination of Meet the Press and 60 Minutes, where he would bring scholars from different points of view to discuss issues of the day. And he would be the moderator for those for those discussions. I think it was an award-winning show he did. Uh, and of course, he, as you know, he represented folks like Tupac as well as Anita Hill. Yes, and and uh, and Anita Hill. And Anita Hill. Yeah, which is which is a, and he got. I got to tell you, that was. Uh, an interesting crossroads in his life when he he represents Anita Hill and of course making advocating for her against Clarence Thomas. We should have listened to him, quite frankly, uh, but we didn't. But but nonetheless, but but it caught he got he, he got a lot of criticism for that because he was this black man even with his political background, uh, conservative background, to, to Clarence Thomas being what people perceived as being attacked by Anita Hill. And Tree was defending Anita Hill and advocating for he, he was her lawyer. And he got a lot of criticism for that. And But in hindsight, in retrospect, as I said earlier, uh, it appears that Anita Hill, we should have listened to Anita Hill and, 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 and Charles Ogletree, considering what we had. <laughs> and that, I'm going to say that on the record. Um, but nonetheless, he, but, he, but, he, he, but he survived that. And his credibility and integrity remained intact. And he went on later. As you may may remember, he he went into he went to Oklahoma to speak at a program honoring uh, John Blasting Games. Um, I'm sorry, John John Franklin, John Hope Franklin's father, uh, who was a who was a lawyer during the Black Wall Street uh, uh, during that time. And when he went when he got out there, he was shocked to discover there were still people living. Babs, there were survivors of the Tulsa massacre. The Black Wall Street massacre. Who these, these folks were children, like literally five, six years old when the massacre happened. But now they were in their nineties, and some even over one hundred who were still alive. 
who could recall and recollect what happened. And he met with them and he was so moved because he said he had not heard that story, even though he was a Stanford graduate, Harvard Law School graduate, a scholar in, in many respects, but had not heard of what transpired in Tulsa. And he that was a, and so he decided to tackle that case and become an, and become an advocate for the survivors um, of the Tulsa race race riot, the massacre there. And he went before the Congress, went before the courts, trying to get justice and reparations for them. And that that battle continues to, to this very day, quite frankly. Yeah, yeah. So were you were you stunned that at sixty two he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's? Like, yeah, I was. When when I didn't, I I didn't. I heard it actually through, of course, Reggie. Reggie and I, his his best friend, Reggie, Reggie, they were both best men at each other's weddings, and his boy. Uh, as, as he calls him, but I just heard from him this morning, and uh, he's of course still grieving. But he was overwhelmed by this outpouring, outpouring of, of of support and and acclamation for for Charles, for Tree. So anyway, so Reggie called me and said because I was trying actually I was trying to you should really, you appreciate this I was trying to get Tree to come speak here. I wanted him to come to speak at either NAACP Freedom Fund dinner or just come to New Haven to speak, and uh, and and. Um, yeah, because he's at Harvard, so he, he wouldn't have a problem coming to Yale, of course. <laughs> but but the problem was, uh, since I reached out to him, through, I was trying to reach out to him through Reggie, and Reggie indicated then, he said on the download, he said, you got to keep this to yourself. But uh, Charles is his early, early onset, you know, on, on, on uh, what's it called, on, you know, the word. Early onset, Alzheimer's. Yeah, early onset, Alzheimer's. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thanks for clarifying that, this, this English major. So, Anyways, on a serious tip, he I, I heard it from Reggie and I was I was stunned, yes, and, and saddened because you know, he was 62 and he was a brilliant lawyer and at, at the peak of his career, you know, because at that time I believe uh Barack Obama, well, I think it was ending it, uh, was, was wrapping up his presidency, and they were very close, as you know. Yeah, because he was his professor. Yeah, so Ogletree, yeah, so he was professor Christopher Katanji Jackson, of course, is on the Supreme Court now. And he Michelle taught, Obama. And Michelle, but he talked both. So listen, I had a child came to, Chitri came to UConn several years ago before this onset uh, the dementia and Alzheimer's, rather, and spoke at UConn. And I, I was invited, I got word of whatever, met him there. We talked for a while. And we, I'm sitting in his car with him. He says to me, well, you know, I talked both Barack and Michelle. And I'll tell you, Cliff, Michelle was a lot smarter than Barack. He said, a whole lot, <laughs> a whole lot smarter. And so I said, so I, we laughed at that, but um, but anyway, he taught them both, and so my, my thinking was, quite frankly, that had Barack, first of all, two things: had, had Charles not gotten sick, and had Barack Obama had another opportunity to appoint Supreme Court justice, Charles Ogletree would have been at the top of that list because he was he was it was well it was a scholar, well learned, um, and and uh, educated, and experienced. And I believe he'd have been at the top of his list, and, and would have there been some pushback, I'm sure, from some Republicans. But I think for the most part, he would have gotten through the Senate without 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 a major problem. But unfortunately, because of two things: one, I think his illness primarily, and it could have been a thing. And also, I, I thought about this, Babs. Remember, Charles Ogletree was Anita Hill's lawyer <laughs> to advocating against Clarence Thomas, so it might have been a problem there as well if he got on the Supreme Court with, with Clarence Thomas. I'm not sure how that would have worked out, but uh, <laughs> but uh, but and, I, and I'm sure they probably. Thought, I'm sure I had to believe that that he, that that the tree 
and, and President Obama talked about that. So, you know, I don't know how this would work, man. But um, but any event, but yes, but it was a but certainly he but he was a great scholar and 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 mentor. Even when Dr. when Barack and Michelle were in the White House, Charles was invited. She was invited to the White House on many occasions to to sit down and discuss issues with them. Uh, he even did a seminar at Harvard Law School on Obama's presidency. While, while yes. Obama was the president, um, so he was. They were very close, very close, and uh, and and well respected by the Obamas for sure. And he, he was Tupac um, Shakur's attorney too. Yeah, interesting. Enough, yeah, if you, if, which is funny how that how that happened that he gets to be Tupac. But again, his his reputation similar similar to uh, Johnny Cochran, uh, in, in both of them from California. But but uh, and they knew each other. And by the way, so with, going back to the Oklahoma case quickly. So Charles Tree assembled a, a, a bunch of a group of lawyers from around the country, including Johnny Cochran, to assist him with that Oklahoma case. But I think because of Tree's reputation around the country, people recognize his scholarship and his brilliance and his and his capabilities. And I'm sure words filtered down to Tupac's people, and that was which why they reached out to him and to, to serve as his counsel. Um, and he had no problem doing that because he, he, was, he was a lawyer first, first and foremost, and wanted to make sure everyone was treated fairly and justly. Yeah, wow. Tupac. I, I love but, 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 but that's I love Tupac that needed heal. Yes, yeah, certainly. And of course, the Oklahoma. That, that's, that's very extreme. These are three yeah. extreme things. <laughs> Absolutely. But that was true. You know, but, but again, he was as, as brilliant as he was, and, and he, was, he was just as humble. And and he'd walk into a room unassuming, unassuming, and 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 that's the way he was. That's the way he was brought up, and um, and he just just made him that, that. That's what made him so much so so special, quite frankly. In my so, eyes. so Cliff, talk about. I mean, y'all were in law school at the height yeah. of, you know, right yeah. in the middle of the civil rights. You know, all yeah. the civil rights stuff, like the Black Power movement. I mean, the the seventies was hot. So you know, I mean. Yeah. Did it did it solidify your reasoning for wanting to be an attorney and and your contemporaries? You know, when you look back on them now, I mean, were heavy hitters. Oh, for sure. I, I was I was honored and blessed to, to to be a part of to be a part of that generation of lawyers. You're right. We so we those of us in law school in, in the mid seventies, of course, were in high school in, in the late sixties, and then in college in the early from late sixties, early seventies. So the time we get to law school. And uh, I graduated from Tufts University in 1975, went to Georgetown, and the group of students who came out, from, no, no matter where they were, whether you know from conservative black colleges or schools like 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 Tree and, and Reggie from Stanford or other Ivy League schools, we had a common bond because of the, the political atmosphere that that had been created at that time. Because at the time we were in law school, the women's Ben Chavis and the women's Ten were still uh, incarcerated and fighting for justice. There were countless other cases of Black Panther cases around the country, but folks were still being were still incarcerated, still fighting for for justice and freedom. Uh, the, the FBI was still the Cointel program was still in, in effect uh, as far as uh, uh, identifying and targeting um, what, what they considered to be threat African American men and women who were threats to to American security. And so there there was a need for lawyers. So when we meet and talk and have our when we discuss things. It was about how do we how do we train ourselves as lawyers uh, to fight these battles, and it wasn't everybody. Let's be clear: some of the lawyers, some of my colleagues and classmates, were saying, "Okay, we understand that, but I'm I'm here to become a corporate lawyer. I want to go into corporate law. I want to make some money and build, and that's fine. We we acknowledge that, respected that. 
But there was a core group of folks, and she was 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 in the in, in it was in the center of that who tried to encourage us that we had an obligation and responsibility to to fight for for, for social justice, for racial justice, for and challenge the inequities in the criminal justice system, which is why, again, his first job out of law school at Harvard was to work in the D.C. Public Defender Office. Now, you got to imagine, you can appreciate the fact, coming out of Harvard Law School with a Stanford undergraduate degree, Tree had the, the world was his oyster. He could have probably taken any number of jobs in corporate America, doing other things that would have made a lot more money for him. But he purposely chose to come to D.C., the nation's capital, that chocolate city at that time, to come and fight because he understood clearly how the criminal justice system was 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 um, inequitable and mistreating scores and scores of young black men in particular. So he came to fight that battle, and that, that was his first job out of law school. And, and that was he was trying to encourage us and motivate many of us to 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 to, to, to roll up our sleeves and fight these battles. But there were right to your point, yes, there were any number of cases. So so going back to the women's ten case, we worked. And with the Black Law, Law Student Association, we invited lawyers who were the lawyers who were actually practicing at the time to come and talk to us about those cases. And and we actually did research, and they we, they they commissioned us and brought us in to be volunteer researchers on on some of those cases. But yeah, but it was a, a challenging time, but a, but certainly a time that certainly shaped my career in terms of being being in social service and and, and community activism. And countless other my, my my friends. I never get into the story quickly. We were uh, at, at, during this period of time, and, and black students were sitting around talking about what we plan to do and the, the struggles we plan to fight. And I, I never forget this bad. There was one of our, our white classmates who who overheard us talking about some of these cases, women's ten, Black Panthers, and social injustices. And he came up to us and said, "Listen, you mind if I tell you something?" We said, "Sure." He said, "Listen, I." I want to let you know how much I admire all of you, you, you men and women, for, for coming to law school and having a purpose and a focus in life. He said, he's from South Carolina, by the way. He said, when I, he said, I'm a young white boy from South Carolina. My path is already paid. All my father and grandfather told me to do is graduate. As soon as I graduate, I got a job waiting for me and my parent and my family law firm, and I'll be fine. I'll be fine the rest of my life. All I got to do is show up and, and go to work. I'm good. He said, "That's all, and, and that's all. That's all I have to live for. I have no focus, no no plans, no no agenda. Just graduate from law school and go work for my family law firm." He said, "You guys, on the other hand, have a purpose, have a fire, have a burning. There's a burning I sense in, in your stomach to fight and 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 to have something to live for and to fight for." And he said, honestly and candidly, he said, "I admire that because I don't have that." And that's something that stuck with me all these years later, Bev. Now, he didn't speak for everybody, but certainly it was an indicative of the times in which we live and the different purposes, quite frankly, even to this very day, that, that, that law students and, 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 and black professionals, professionals in, any, in, any, in any realm, your, your profession, in, in journalism, and, and whether it's in medicine, whether it's in engineering, whether it's in teaching, in law, whatever profession we find ourselves in, we should have because of circumstances, a different purpose, a different agenda than other folks because of the conditions of our community and the situations we find ourselves in. So. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty this is, damn good. Uh, yeah, wow. it's deep. But this that is, is deep. It's deep. And it's something that stuck with me all these years later. I said, uh, about this guy, and he was as, as honest and candid as he could be, but he appreciated us. And that's something that stuck with me. 
and even some of my colleagues to this very day, we remember that we remember that discussion with him, and and talk about um, that and how um, it is just true. It's so true. And uh, so, and how do you what, feel now, Clifton? I mean, it's this is a full circle moment. I mean, we've seen the Supreme Court, this particular sitting setting of sitting of Supreme Court justices, undo so many gains. You know, yes. I mean, how does that? How, how how do you how do you reconcile that in your in your it's, legal mind? It's, it's it's difficult. These cases, these yeah, the case um yeah certainly the, this, this this case the uh, students for fairness and admissions. That I mean that, that was the the, the the plaintiff's name in that in those cases against the University of North Carolina and Harvard challenging their affirmative action policies. The students for fair for fair admissions. What I find is a uh, an, an interesting uh name quite frankly given given what they were fighting for and fighting against so it's um it's 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 a, it's a challenge of, and, and it's it's it's, it's, remor- it's for me it's very remorseful and and and, and reflective for me to uh, to look back on all this and say gee we were fighting 50, 45 years over 40 years ago almost 50 years ago we were fighting for for, for equity fairness and and uh, opportunity and then now things are coming full circle in, in, in many respects, and so I, I so I, I I fret for the students coming behind me, the, the students that are in high school now or in college now, uh, especially the, the African American and Latino students, the students of color, because now they have to fight this battle almost all, all over again, and and, and and come up with different strategies. So it's um it, it, it's 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 sad in a way, but but it's also uh, again it reminds us that what we what we've been told, oh you were told, I've been told and taught over the years. That this battle um, is far from over. It's, it's a daily battle. You know, John Lewis said it, Frederick Douglass said it 150 years ago. You know, this, this struggle may be a moral one or a physical one, but it must be a struggle. You know, power concedes nothing without a demand, never has, never will. You know, you may not get all you pay for in this world, but you, but you got to pay for whatever you get. And that's where we are. We have to continue to fight this battle. It's, it's unfortunate, but, it, but it's true. But, it, but, but to your point, but on but the other hand, is this. I taught, I was fortunate to teach a course this past semester at Quinnipiac Law School in Constitutional Law, Civil Rights. And we focused in on case, this case, quite frankly, even before it was heard before the Supreme Court, as well as countless other cases from the abortion rights case to, to cases dealing with uh, the LGBTQ community. Uh, we, we, we talked about civil rights and, 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 and inequity and justice in America. And I was, I gotta tell you, that I was pleased and hardened by the fact that these young students and quite, a, quite and I had there were 17 law students in Quinnipiac. There were only two students of color. There was a Latina and one African American sister in the class. There were only two. Everybody else was Caucasian. But to but to but to their credit, the majority of those students were like, we have to we have to commit ourselves as law students today to fight these battles. Whether it was in, in indigenous rights, whether it's African American, Latino. Uh, it was across the board. They, they, and again, that's a small group. It's not everybody. But I was hardened by their commitment, their knowledge, their 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 criticism of the current court and its and its policies and what's going on in the country. And I'm, so I'm hopeful that that this is going on in other classrooms across the country at Howard, at Harvard, at Yale. I was just about to ask you: Do you think that there's this renewed sense in the law, or for law students? To pick up these mantles and run, right? Do, are you? Are you? Do, are you? Does that 
Do you, are you, hopefully we're seeing that. Do you think we're seeing that? I hope so. But I do. I, well, I'm, I'm hopeful because here's the thing. Even at, and I, I remind, you know, I teach African, you know, I teach African-American history at Gateway. And I remind my students every, every, semester, every year that at the height, we have to remember in our history, at the height of the civil rights movement, at the height of the civil rights movement, less than 15% of black people were involved. It wasn't like everybody. When you see the films and, and you know, whether it's the March of Washington or folks in the street, you say, oh, everybody was marching. Everybody was demonstrating. No, that was only a small group of folk who were out there not knocking on doors, not getting folks registered to vote, standing in the streets, marching, getting hosed by with, with water hose and bitten by the dogs. That was only a small percentage of us and even a smaller percentage of black lawyers who were involved in fighting these battles. But it, it, was, it was a core group, a committed group, we applaud, that's why we applaud and commend folks like Constance Baker and Thurgood Marshall and, and, that, and that, that core group of advocates and Charles Hamilton Houston, of course, who was their teacher and mentor. But so to, to your point, there, there won't be, a, there, we don't need to be, a, there don't need to be a whole lot of folks. But as long as they, my, my sense of it is, my hope is that if Quinnipiac, Quinnipiac of all places, is in the in, in indicator of a cadre of folks, at Quinnipiac, and there's, if there could be a cadre at Yale Law School, which I have to believe there might there might be, because Yale does have teachers there who were who who were products of and and uh, certainly uh, beneficiaries of affirmative action programs and the civil rights movement. There's still lawyers and uh, black and white who are there at Yale at these law schools. Yale in particular, I would think, um, more so the Quinnipiac, I would say. But but Quinnipiac does have Marilyn Ford, who's been, a, as you may know, a staunch advocate fight up for civil rights for many years. And, and, and my sorority sister. <laughs> and, and your sorority, absolutely. <laughs> Got to throw that in there, for sure. So you know all about Marilyn Ford, who's an icon, in my mind. Uh, and, and certainly she's she's been, she's been I think, the sole person, I think, responsible for the increase in, in, in of number of Black students at Quinnipiac and for them having even a course in civil rights that I was able to teach. So folks like that, as long as they're around, we, we can count on and at least hope that there are folks who were to encourage and motivate students to, to come out here and fight these battles. But understand that, but I also understand these battles are difficult, especially in these days and times, because the courts are, are filled with judges appointed by uh, not just Trump, but even before him, Bush, but primarily Trump. Trump appointed a, a, a slew of federal judges all around the country by design. So you and, those, and these are federal judges, even before these cases get before the Supreme Court, it's more for the matter. It's the federal judges who make decisions on these on a lot of these cases. So it's a it's a it's a it's a difficult time to live in, but it's a challenging time. And the hope my hope is that these law students of all races who are committed to racial justice, social justice, economic justice, gender justice, will find a way to mobilize, organize, and connect with these agencies, entities around the country, like the Law Legal Defense Fund out of New York and and, and countless others, and fight these battles continue to fight these battles as difficult mm. as they might be. Mm. So how do, you, how, do, how do you want the world to remember um, uh, Professor Ogletree? Ogletree? And, and how will you remember Professor Ogletree? I'll, uh, but first, uh, I, I deal with the world first, and then, I, then I'll come back to my personal reflection. Uh, the world should remember him as uh, a brilliant legal scholar activist. Um, there have been there have been scores of black men and women who made their mark in the legal profession. Charles Ogletree stood on the shoulders, of, like I stand on the shoulders of many of those folks, like Charles Hamilton Houston, who he, who he named 
um, who yeah, he was the founding director of that institute at Harvard Law School, Charles Hamilton Houston, of course, brilliant lawyer, Amherst, Harvard, who came being at Howard Law School, mentor to Thurgood Marshall and, and countless others. And um, in terms of he, he, he trained lawyers, he said lawyers should be social engineers. So Charles Ogletree stands in, in, on, on, on Charles Hamilton's shoulders as well as people like not Thurgood Marshall, Constable Baker Motley, Leon Higginbotham, and others. So he should be, I, I, would, I would consider him to be on the Mount, Mount Rushmore of, of African American legal thinkers, jurors, advocates, uh, for sure. Some, some people may challenge that, but certainly I think he should be, we should remember this that as well. And, and as one who was a brilliant, a brilliant legal scholar, again, as I said, activist, advocate, but also uh, humble, down to earth and as humble as one could be, uh, given his stature, status, and the reverence with people who have called it to this very day, and will continue to, to hold up his name. Uh, that's how we should remember him. Um, and, and, a fe and fearless, I should prefer fearless, a fearless advocate, uh, a, speaker, a, a speaker of truth to power, and one who, who, had, who was committed to the uplifting of, of our community and this country, quite frankly. And on a personal note, uh, I, I would I would remember him for all those things, but also I remember just a, a, again this down earth guy who had a great sense of humor, uh, again humble as, as one could be, and and who um, I, I said the story about that picture I mentioned at the outset about my picture being in the book. So this is a fun, just a sidebar. And I remember tree. This is this is tree. He put so he had my picture in the book with him. Two of the two of us are there in the book uh, at the rally, at the back of the rally in front of the, in front of the U.S. Capitol. And so I looked at the picture. So I said, I called Tree. I said, well, Tree, you have my picture in here with you, but you don't put my name. You have my name in here. So he said, Oh, Cliff, I'm sorry. So he said, I take care of it. So within a month, man, he sends me an autographed copy of the book with 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 with, uh, with my picture in it, with my name under it. He said, I, and so that that was tree. Now, of course, I was being, I was just joking with him, but he took it, he took the slight serious enough. He called the publisher, got the, put my name in the book, sent me the copy, autograph, and said, Cliff, I'm sorry, you're my boy. And so, but that was tree. And, and, and that's his humility and his down to earthness. And so I remember that and about him uh, the rest of my life and, and, and appreciate his friendship. His, his, uh, his brilliance and his compassion and his, and his mentorship in many ways uh, to, for all of us to be the best we can be and, and do the best we can do as we fight the struggle for social, social and racial justice in America. Yeah, wow. my man. I, I so appreciate you uh, taking the time to remember your friend because I, I admired him from afar, you know. Yeah. I, I really did and I, I followed uh, his career. I remember seeing him, uh, you know, on the, the the state of the Black Union and facilitating yeah. the conversations. That's that's how I came to know him. Absolutely. And then when he was on PBS doing the Ethics in America roundtable stuff, I was fascinated by the way he would pose these questions about, you know, a question of ethics and 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 the people that were around that table you know, just really wrestling with these things. And I, I was just fascinated by it. So I, I've been a fan for the last 25 years or so of, of him and his he's, mind he's, and brilliance. He, he was great and absolutely. And, and it's interesting how 
you see that how he would, um, even though he, he it was clear about what, what his political perspective was, but he surrounded himself. He, he had no problem being around folks of different political persuasions because that, because that, that sharpened his mind, it sharpened his, his analysis. And so going back to you in the vineyard. So when they, when they premiered this film about uh, before they died, you know, about the Tulsa survivors, actually it was, it was, it was premiered there in Martha's Vineyard that, at that film festival years mm -hmm. ago. So Reggie, Reggie Turner, his, 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 uh, his, his best friend and you know, roommate from college and my classmate at Georgetown, Reggie was a producer because he was, he was been a lawyer, in addition, in addition to being a lawyer, he's a filmmaker. And so, but Charles, of course, was, was an integral part of the film. So they both were there at, uh, Reggie invited me up. I'm there. Of course, Tree is there as a panelist, and, and, uh, which is great. And of course, in that, that film room, that auditorium was full, was packed to the brim. Um, and then, of course, afterwards, we go to dinner. And so Tree invites Alan Dershowitz, you know, Dershowitz, the lawyer from Harvard, who, mm -hmm. Who was a lawyer for Trump <laughs> in, in recent years? He's been Trump's one of Trump's lawyers, but but Al, but Tree and of course they, they had different point, political points of view. But Tree invited Dershowitz to have dinner with this group of folks after after the film because again that's Tree, you know, irrespective of political political positions or persuasions, he all he welcomed that and embraced that. I think and others embraced him for his willingness not to just to. To, to to exclude himself or surround himself with folk who who are like thinkers, and so that that again that that that's a, another contribution and 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 an attribute of tree, and I remember that clearly. I said, I'm, I'm looking around, and said, this is kind of funny that that Dershowitz which is here with tree, but um and uh, and oh and Al Sharpton, <laughs> we had so we had at the table that was it was too funny, but that was Al Sharpton, tree, and Alan Dershowitz. At the, at, the, at the dinner table, and I'm saying, well, gee, this is, this is I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by all this. I'm watching all this unfold, but that was true. He had the ability to bring people of different, different backgrounds and persuasions together and in harmony and discuss issues of the day, but also have dinner as human beings. And, and, and that was, that's another, again, as I said a minute ago, that was, just, that was true. And uh, that's something that uh, I'll, I'll never forget, for sure. Thank you, Cliff Graves. Probate, former probate judge of uh, New Haven. I thank you for this. I want you to come back because I really enjoy talking to you. And I know there's so many other things that we could talk about. So oh, thank for sure. you for your time. So I don't dodge me. <laughs> well, let me, let me, I'll give you two, we settle, yeah, we can. I, I owe you. We can talk about probate court, of course. We can talk about African-American history, Dixwell Church, that I'm moderator for. We, we, a lot of stuff we can talk about in terms of history. And uh, and I and I struggle today. So anytime I owe you at least nine nine more sessions. So nine, nine, nine thousand more sessions. Nine thousand. I'm sorry. Thank yeah. you. I'm and, serious. And, I'm gonna reach out to yeah. you. I'm gonna set some dates up. So I, I want you to come <laughs> on. I want you to come on to talk more because I I like I like what you're saying. So I, I appreciate it. And I know other people would love to hear it. So well, so thank I'm humble, you. I'm humble that you asked me. I appreciate you. Thank you for all you do. You do a great service to our community. I I say that sincerely. Uh, educate, enlightening us, and so God bless you. Take care. Thank you. Yeah. Have a good right. day. I'll see you soon. <laughs> I'm sure you will. Not about the blurriness. All right. Take care. That's all, all right. right. We'll work it out. <laughs> right. Take care. Have a good Thank day. You. Bro. All right, bye, -bye. bye. All right, Harry Droz. I'm not here tomorrow, and I'm not here Friday because I'll be on Martha's Vineyard. So I'll be back on Tuesday because I won't be here Monday because I'll be coming back from Martha's Vineyard. So I will see y'all uh, Tuesday. Y'all behave and be good. Thank you, Harry. Thank you, Paul.
Mm-hmm.